Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. In this program with Dr. Neufeld, we continue our series, He Made Me Human, looking at Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Today, let's look for some answers with Dr. Neufeld with a message entitled, The Most Important Questions. If you're listening to this entire series on Genesis, and I hope you are, you might be wondering why I'm spending so much time on Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I think if we're to comprehend Genesis, or for that matter, if we're to comprehend the entire Bible, this verse and this chapter mean so very much. Bruce Waltke put it this way, in Genesis 1, we're saved out of materialism, the philosophy that thinks that all there is is what is tested in a lab. We're also saved out of humanism, the idea that man is autonomous or that man can do anything he wishes to achieve without ever being humble and dependent. We're also saved out of scientific secularism that states that the world is a closed system, that there is no divine intervention, and that we can solve every problem if we only understand every immediate cause of it. Genesis 1 is a rebuttal to the pagan worldview. We are not shut into hopelessness if we cannot manipulate the laws of nature. Manipulation by itself is paganism. Prayer and reliance on God is what saves. Furthermore, Genesis 1-1 allows us to move beyond pagan thinking in which we think that the world we live in is eternal. But it is not. Indeed, the science of physics tells us that the world we live in had a beginning. There once was a time when physical matter did not exist, and therefore of logical necessity, physical matter is not the explanation of everything. The best that science can do for us is to help us to know the immediate cause of something, but it has no tools to discover the ultimate cause of anything. Okay, let me put it directly. The first 11 chapters of the Bible ask and answer our most foundational questions. I want you to imagine everything you know and believe to be like an iceberg. You say, for example, you have certain viewpoints on the value of work, on what you believe about politics, on what you plan to do on a vacation, and how you believe children should be raised and taught, and what kind of lifestyle is acceptable. Let me say that all those things are the iceberg that is above the water. But as all of us know, the part of the iceberg we can't see, the part below the water, is the great bulk of the iceberg. The first 11 chapters of Genesis addresses what's below the surface. What's below the surface directs and instructs what is above. I see seven fundamental questions asked and answered in Genesis 1 to 11. Here's the first. Who is God? Let's go back to our sentence. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Let's not pass over this point quickly. What this text says is that there is a fundamental difference between God and the things you can test in a scientific lab. God is not ever to be identified with nature, with the creation. He stands apart from it. The natural, physical realm is fundamentally different than he. He is creator. Everything else is creation. The reason I say this is because all over the world there are people who bow before the sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, and the trees, and I hear people saying they wish to go on a spiritual journey, and in so doing they find themselves discovering the spirituality of nature. I hear people saying they worship God in the great cathedral of creation. Hear me, you will not find God there. You'll find the handiwork of God, but not God. 
It's as if you looked at a great painting, and no doubt you would discover something of the painter from the work, but if you decided to carry on a conversation with the work and pretend the work is communicating back to you, you should receive psychiatric help. See, the same is true with God. God is supernatural. He stands apart from creation. He is never to be identified with the creation. It's not possible to find God apart from revelation. Unless God chooses to reveal himself, we will not find him. That's who God is. God is creator, not creation. But if that's who God is, then comes our second question. Who are we? You know, I can't even begin to stress how significant that question is for our society. Let me explain. A number of years ago, a Saskatchewan man by the name of Robert Latimer put his handicapped daughter to death. He was subsequently arrested, but Robert Latimer was completely unrepentant. He said that if we had known how much his daughter actually suffered, we would see that this was not an act of villainy, but an act of kindness. Also, a number of years ago, a woman named Susan Rodriguez suffered from MS and ended her own life, probably with the help of friends and perhaps even with the help, although we can't know it for sure, but certainly to the applause of a member of the Canadian Parliament. I'm reminded of a friend whose aged dog had gone blind and was suffering from severe arthritis. That's what he did to his dog. You know, I never thought my friend was cruel, so was Robert Latimer cruel? See, that all depends on what he was dealing with when he was dealing with his daughter. Did Robert Latimer ever understand what or who she was? Now, I don't know. Is there a difference between saving the whales and saving unborn children from the abortionist cruel tools? In order to understand whether Robert Latimer or the MP who helped end Susan Rodriguez's life are heroes or villains, you must answer the question, that most foundational question of, who are we? See, some people believe that we're the product of blind chance, simply a random happening in nature. I have a friend who teaches evolutionary science, and he tells me that if the world were to explode tomorrow, if some country set off a nuclear bomb that would wipe out all life, he said there would be no one to watch and no one to care, and it wouldn't mean anything in the universe. See, lots of folks believe that. It's like that great mass of the iceberg under the surface. It's why they act the way they do. It's that belief that allows you to go to your doctor when you're pregnant and when after you have had an amniocentesis and the doctor tells you that your baby has Down syndrome. That allows you to say, well, then let's end this pregnancy before this child ever sees the sufferings of life. After all, a handicapped child is of no advantage to the child and never to us. See, in contrast to that view, listen to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, according to Genesis, when God created human beings, he created something decidedly different than everything else he had created in the cosmos. There is in every single human being a mark, an image, a likeness, a series of traits that are a direct reflection of God. Once I come to understand that, I can't treat you as a commodity or dispose of you when you're inconvenient or murder you when you're in pain. I can't put you on a lower plane when you exhibit racial characteristics that are different than mine. In fact, I can't even dismiss you when you dismiss the existence of our Creator. There is something sacred about you and about your life from the very point of time when you were conceived in your mother's womb. But the question of who is God and who are we are not the end of our questions. More follow. 
Here now is the third profound question. What is life for? See, before my day, a well-known singer, woman named Peggy Lee, sang that famous song, Is That All There Is? I think we've always sung that song. You see, a great part of humanity goes through life not knowing what life is about. And when we're young, we prepare ourselves for our career and often believe we'll accomplish something great. But then at some point, life becomes just going to work and watching TV and going to the movies or a sports game and going out to a party or a club and getting older and trying to have some friends and some meaningful times and then dying. And what Peggy Lee wanted to know was this, is that all there is? What's life for? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, according to Genesis, God said that you have been created to be a ruler over the work of God's hands. Your task as an image bearer of God is as God's representative, his vice regent, if you will, created to extend his rule. And that's what life is for. And if your life is ever to make even a bit of sense, you'll have to learn what it means to begin to exercise God's dominion on his behalf. But there's more. In fact, let's get very contemporary with our question, shall we? Here's the fourth question. What is sex all about? See, I can't even begin to accurately state how ignorant we have become of the meaning of sex. It's incredible, really. After all the sex education, after all the sexually explicit stuff on television and movies and magazines, internet, billboards, after championing the right to express ourselves in whatever sexual way we want, we still don't know and remain profoundly confused and insecure in our sexuality. People try to discover their sexuality, understand what it's for, and still they don't know. And fascinatingly enough, this ancient book of Genesis will help to set the record straight. Well, join me and come back after the break. When we come to read Genesis 1, we must remember that it forms the foundation or the iceberg of what we believe as Christians. Genesis deserves the Christian's attention because of what it claims about God, humanity, and life itself. We've looked at three of the most important questions so far. Now let's address three more, including what this thing sex is really all about when we come back right after this break. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, our mission is to reach God's people and engage them in His Word through expositional Bible teaching. To achieve this, we make our Bible teaching and engagement resources available in as many forms on as many mediums as possible. One of these resources includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, containing exclusive articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Gain's Phil Calloway, and a variety of pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. In it, you'll also find information about upcoming special ministry events, activities, and projects. It's our hope that this resource would encourage, inspire, and disciple readers to a deeper relationship with the Lord. To subscribe and receive a physical copy of our June issue of Truth and Life magazine, mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca slash magazine, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.
saw in a recent survey that Canadians actually have less sex than we used to have. But I doubted it, not because it might not be true, but because I actually don't think many people tell you the truth about their sexual lives. But what got me about the survey is this. It's as if the writers of the survey simply assumed that the purpose of sex was to have a lot of sex. And we didn't really know why that was so important. And then woe be to us if we were not carrying out our mandate to have more and not less. See, I'm a child of the 60s and the 70s. I grew up in what was then called the sexual revolution. I lived through the introduction of the pill and the belief that sex was like recreational fun. You and I now live in a culture that demands every conceivable form of sexual freedom. And yet here we live on this side of the sexual revolution and we're having less fun and more harm to relationships than ever before. Listen to Genesis 2, 22 to 25. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, according to Genesis, the purpose of sex is related to two things. First, to bind a man and a woman together for life. And second, for the purpose of creating the next generation. It has to do with having children. Children are not the product of an accident in sex. We're not looking to have fun and then, oops, someone got pregnant. Children were intended as the product of a loving, dynamic relationship. Life was supposed to come from a lifelong commitment of love. Sex has to do with nakedness that is not naughty or shameful, but nakedness that is honest and transparent and trusting and intimate and loving and enduring. Premarital sex, divorce, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, all of this violates the purpose the Creator infused into the act of sex that is a life-giving act of sustained and committed love. So who is God and who are we and what's life for and what's sex all about? Now, here's the fifth question. What is the true nature of the human condition? See, are we free? Are we relatively good? Are we evil? What accounts for human behavior? You know, I was a psychology major in the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, and there I was taught that all human behavior has a reason for it. Behavior is never random. See, on that point, it seemed all psychologists agreed. But after that, the agreement ended. The Freudians argued that the motivation for our behavior rests in our subconscious hidden urges. And the humanists argued that the motivation for our behavior came in our drive for self-actualization. And the behaviorists argued that it was because of learned responses based upon something they called operant conditioning. And others, well, they argued that all responses were based upon our genetic makeup. But the more I studied, the more I marveled at the complexity of human behavior. Genesis 2, 15-17 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. According to Genesis, each one of us lives with the reality that our first parents chose death rather than life. But the Bible defines us as profoundly sinful and depraved. There's not a part of our personality that has not been touched or twisted by our rebellion against God. We have an ability to take every one of God's good gifts 
and turn it into depravity. God wants us to worship him. We worship the creation. God wants us to rejoice in life, and and we have a love affair with death. God wants us to extend his rule in life, and we spend our lives rebelling against his rule. God wants sex to bind a woman and a man with strong, unbreakable bonds and be for the purpose of giving life, and we use it for selfish and hurtful pleasure, even if that means we destroy life. We are fundamentally depraved. But Genesis asks and answers still another question. Sixth, why is the human race divided and at odds with each other? See, the answer to this question is completely surprising. We might say that it's divided because we're so sinful and death marks our path. But that, we find, is only part of the answer. According to Genesis 11, verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. See, according to Genesis, the human race is divided because God dispersed it. Genesis tells us that God did it so that human power and human wickedness would be limited. God would prevent a super society from again bringing horror on the earth. In time, empires came and empires went, but no one has ever succeeded in putting the earth like Humpty Dumpty back together again. The division of nations is a part of the grace of God. It prevents a worldwide dictatorship from crushing all human life. See, we've, we've asked and answered six key questions. First, who is God? And second, who are we? And third, what's life for? And fourth, what's sex all about? And fifth, what is the nature of the human condition? And sixth, why is the human race divided? And finally, seventh, one final question. Where are we going? Is there a point to the entire human experience? Does it matter that we have occupied this planet? Will anyone care after we're gone? The book of Genesis is a book in motion. You know, people are constantly on the move. Adam and Eve move out of the garden. Cain moves to another land. The the citizens of the Tower of Babel scatter throughout the earth. Later, Abraham moves to a land that God will show him. You know, we also are on a pilgrimage. Our pilgrimage is to get to the celestial city. But we can never get there on our own. The human condition is such that we will lose our way. But here, Genesis 3.15 comes with a very powerful promise. God speaking says, I will put enmity, that is, I will make a perpetual warfare and hatred between you, that is, he's speaking to Satan, between you, Satan, and the woman, and she, of course, is the representative of the human race. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, that is, inflict a fatal wound on you, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel, that is, cause him pain. See, we'll look in detail at this text later, but for now, recognize that God has promised to send one to finally and ultimately crush Satan and his influence of evil. The message of Genesis is that things are filled with evil now, but there is a coming day of great hope when this evil era is finally ended. And that's where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and is a necessary supplement to the book of Genesis. I hope you're getting to see that the book of Genesis asks and answers the most fundamental questions that both the human race and any individual can ever have. It provides purpose and meaning and hope. Indeed, this book lays the groundwork for the entire Christian faith. And if listened to, it will change the way you see the world. See, I want you to imagine the people who first heard the stories found in Genesis 1 to 11. Moses taught these stories to a group of freed slaves who were wandering in the desert. And Joshua 24, verse 14 says, Joshua said these words, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. 
throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. See, it turns out that the people who first heard the stories of Genesis 1 to 11, they were pagans who worshipped nature and the gods of Egypt and not the one creator God. The Genesis account was designed to lay the groundwork for their faith, and it will do the same for us. Indeed, we are not unlike the people who first heard these stories. We have our own gods, the gods of the modern creation myth, uh, the gods of entertainment, the gods of sex, the gods of materialism, and the gods of pleasure, all the gods that demand that we bow before them and surrender our purpose and meaning into their hands for a moment of finite pleasure. The book of Genesis invites us to throw these gods away and come to the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, come to the God who sends his own son so that we might be reconciled to him. When God wanted to teach us who we are and what matters most, he told us the true story of something that happened in the beginning. Stay tuned. John, there's a whole lot to think about there. Uh, One of the questions I might ask you, though, is why do you think so many of us sort of disregard the book of Genesis today? Well, I think we do for a number of reasons, and and I think one of the reasons is, I mean, the advent of the teaching of evolutionary biology, which teaches that, you know, that life came as a result of pure random factors, undirected random chance. And the book of Genesis teaches that uh, life appeared because of intelligent design, God, the intelligent creator who designed all things. So there is in the minds of a great many people this idea that, um, you know, common scientific consensus and, uh, and uh, what the book of Genesis teaches is at odds with one another. And uh, I'm going to argue that, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, what the book of Genesis teaches is indeed true and doesn't contradict science if it is science that simply observes what we see in nature. So I'm just going to simply say that Genesis does not contradict science, but it does contradict secular philosophy. Perhaps after today's lesson, you've started to experience a renewed interest in the book of Genesis. Genesis provides answers to some of the biggest questions every human faces, issues of purpose and meaning and ultimately hope. Without this book, our faith rests on nothing. My prayer is that today's message has encouraged and challenged you in your walk and that you'll make the choice to join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld tackles the question, why does the world exist? From Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's Word that we might become a people for His glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read Scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca 
or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.